Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, birthplace of Mac Rebenack, better known as the legendary Dr. John, and composer, musician, producer, Alan Toussaint, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the state where country legends Glenn Campbell and Johnny Cash were born. Tonight, we'll continue updating cases we've covered since we launched the show in February, and then we'll look ahead to cases we'll be covering during the rest of our season. We're a live show, and calls are always welcome. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please call us. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And how are you doing this Tuesday, Michael? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Definitely always interesting to hear the facts you have about Arkansas. Of course, you know, everybody likes Johnny Cash, so, you know, that's one we get Mm -hmm. on you guys, even though you guys have plenty, plenty of musicians (laughs) uh, there in New Orleans. Yeah, and you got Glenn Campbell, too, the late. Great Glenn Campbell, um, and there's a there's an interesting connection. Alan Toussaint wrote and recorded Southern Nights, okay. which was recorded by Glenn Campbell in 1977. Hmm. And I believe Alan Toussaint produced that for Glenn Campbell. Well, they all have to look that up. That's so there's a cool. connection that. They had. That's pretty so, darn cool. Then good old Dr. John. He is awesome. Mm. You're right. you're probably too young to <laughs> Well, I mean, what I'm too young for I pick up from my grandmother whenever I'm listening to music <laughs> Oh God. Oh God, that makes me feel so old. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, my grandma listens to a lot of the old country artists as far as that goes, and all the old artists, period. Uh, yeah. Listen to a lot of, like, Patsy Klein and all that stuff, so. Okay, no, yeah. I, I don't, I, Dr. John is actually, um, it's New Orleans, he blends country, rock and roll, uh, jazz, blues, and 
right place. Yeah, I was in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. Hmm. You might remember that from uh, Billy Preston. That's Dr. John. Okay. I'll have to look it up and sample some of his stuff and listen to it. <laughs> we might we might make that the theme song for a little while. Okay. Okay. Hey, <laughs> sounds like a good theme song for some of the excuses some of these people make. That that is very true. I never <laughs> thought of that. That is so true. Yeah, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, I was in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. Oh. So okay. it's it, it, it's a good song. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely look at that one for maybe a permanent theme. Although I do like picking songs from different eras mm-hmm. uh, that are that are relevant or can be relevant, or songs that could be con- uh, descriptive of someone involved in the case, a police officer, a judge, a prosecutor, offender, or victim. Right, right. So that's, that's what makes it interesting is what song are they going to play this week? And it's yeah, interesting for me, what song am I going to pick? So Right. That is always fun. To, uh, that was always <laughs> fun to pick the song for the, uh, for the uh, case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the interesting thing. You know, one of, the, one of the ones we didn't really have to, or I didn't at least have to go very far on or think too hard about is, the uh, West Memphis Surrey case, which we talked about at length last week with uh, Gary Meek. Uh, you know, everybody associates the song uh, Welcome Home by right. Metallica <laughs> that case because of uh, yeah. thanks to thanks to, uh, and of course uh, Paradise Lost. Of course I'm right. my Paradise Lost. But yeah, of course everybody associates those two together. Yeah, um, and actually there was there was something interesting someone told me. I can't conf- I haven't confirmed it, but mm-hmm. they claimed that the song that was used was called "Fade to Black" when it was actually a song called "Sanitarium." Well, well the song is called "Welcome Home," but in okay, italics it's "Sanitarium." Okay. Okay. All right. I I wasn't a I wasn't a Metallica fan until um their uh, the Black album came out when they stopped screaming and banging their heads and James Hetfield started actually singing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Metallica so. definitely a lot of fans here recently as far as. Uh, the whole Napster thing, I remember that, even though that was, good lord, 18 years ago, 19 yeah. years ago. That makes me feel yeah. old. <laughs> that's to make you feel old oh, now. Oh, lord. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're not even close. <laughs> so, yeah, we had a great discussion with Gary, and... um I really am looking forward to, at some point, putting my head together with Gary and plotting out season two, or at least part of season two, and just going, 
as many parts as it takes to do a comprehensive review of the West of the Three Cases up through now with seven years post-Alfred plea and not one shred of exculpatory evidence seeing the light of day, even though they keep saying they have it. They keep saying they're doing testing. They keep saying they're investigating. And yet seven years in on Sunday, it will be seven years since they were released. Wow. It doesn't seem and like it's been. And, uh, we've got nothing like- but promises, and we've got promises but no actual exculpatory evidence. Right, right, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, the case has pretty much gone away as far as that goes whenever, you know, they were released with the Alfred plea. It seems like right. kind of gone the ground, and I really haven't but, seen very much of it since then. But every, every time you think it's gone away, then Baldwin appears on something or Eccles does something and posts about it, and, you know, then suddenly or it's Mitchell. back into the – it's back into the media, and they're held out as exonerated – and, you know, innocent when that's not what the Alfred plea means. Right, right. And I think, you know, same as we usually do, I think you need to probably, for our newer listeners, need to explain exactly what an Alfred plea is. Right, right. Um, we can actually cover that um, on a future episode. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, and look at cases where it's been used and, and what stage it's been used. The thing that I've found that is unusual about the West Memphis Three case is generally an Alfred plea is not done unless a new trial is ordered after a, a successful post-conviction claim. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think they're the only ones who had a post-conviction claim pending and then came up with the idea to enter Alfred Pleas at that time. Right. So A lot of people believe that, or the story I've heard is a lot of people believe that the state was going to grant them another trial and the uh, the prosecution just didn't want to deal with it pretty much and was like, hey, you know what? Here's this. I'm wiping my hands up. Again, the the problem with that is, first of all, it was Patrick Banka on behalf of Eccles who came up with the Alfred plea. Uh Uh-huh. He went to Scott Ellington. Of course, Scott Ellington is going to accept it. It ends the the evidentiary hearings. It ends all post-conviction litigation. It ends the appeals from Miss Kelly and Baldwin on their Rule 37 claims. It ends federal habeas claims. It ends everything. Of course, he's going to say, "Sure, if your if your clients are willing to do it, yeah, I'll take that." But <clears throat> saying that the judge was going to grant it, you know, Scott Ellington was putting the cart before the horse. 
Yeah, Judge Laser right. might have granted it, but that would have depended, first of all, on the strength of their evidence. If the DNA results were, at that point, everything that was released publicly was inconclusive. The mitochondrial right. DNA is not conclusive. The exclusions of them are not was not conclusive because a lot of evidence did not return any DNA. And there were partial profiles that did not exclude Eccles, Baldwin, and or Miss Kelly. And all it takes is a partial profile not excluding to refute their claim that they were excluded by all DNA. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, and, I, you know, my mind's kind of cloudy as far as what happened in uh, Paradise Lost 3, but did they say this was going to be the first trial that the original trial judge was not going to be presiding over? This was going to be their first? Yes, uh, it would be. And and the thing, again, this is a, a, a misconception about the law. Most states in post-conviction, the proper court is the trial court. Right. And if the judge is still on the bench, that means the same judge that presided over the trial. It's actually uh-huh. not unusual, and it's not something that a practice that's unique to Arkansas, and it's also not a quote appeal. Right. So Judge Burnett presiding over Rule Thirty Seven was not improper, was not wrong, was not you know impermissible. It was actually the way it's done in a lot of states. And, um, again, you know, the, the outcome, I think one of the problems is that lay people tend to, and people who believe that someone is, you know, wrongfully convicted, they tend to judge based upon the outcome. They don't believe there was enough evidence to convict. Therefore, it's a wrongful conviction. Right. And so, um, you know, Judge Burnett reviewing and, and he wasn't judging his own, you know, proceedings or whatever. He wasn't judging himself. He was judging what they presented as far as ineffective assistance of counsel and the pretrial publicity and the change of venue and, and, and those issues that they raised, um, and I don't think any of their Rule 37 claims involved any alleged misconduct on the part of Judge Burnett anyway. Right. So, but, uh, yeah. I know Judge Lather, based on what the defense, based on what the defense had presented up to that point, mostly in the media, mm-hmm. yeah, Judge Lather said he probably was going to grant new trials. However, that was not based on all of the evidence. Right. Because nothing at that point had been presented by the state to refute. And you have to think about who are their witnesses. Pam Hobbs, her sisters, her mother, with their 
negative statements and allegations of abuse uh, by Terry Mm -hmm. Hobbs. I can promise you, under cross-examination, things would not have gone well. Now, see, that's the one stickler that I got. Maybe we can talk about this more at length in the uh, episode we do starting off in Season 2. But the thing that sticks with me is Pam. Why would Pam all of a sudden switch and support her child's killer if, unless he was legitimately Um, There was a lot of money involved. There was a lot of high-profile support. And, you know, Pam, I think of all the parents, while they were all profoundly affected by this, Pam, I think, probably came the closest to really, really, truly losing her mind. I don't know. I, unless John Mark, uh, unless John had uh, been no John crazy John Mark John Mark Byers is is crazy like a fox. So you don't think he's insane? You think he just is? You know he's calculating and he's manipulative, and mm-hmm. you know when when he saw the way the wind was going to blow. When nothing linked him and everybody was going to, nobody was going to be paying any attention to him, that's when he switched sides. And again, Amy Berg, Peter Jackson, they made it a very lucrative proposition for these people. So then I now ask you this, though. If John Mark switched sides because nobody was changed, it was, uh, Looking at him, wouldn't that be almost a guilty look on him? Well, no, because he never had anything. He never had anything to do with the murders, any more than Terry Hobbs did. Uh huh. It's just that what he saw when that mitochondrial DNA came out, he saw that now they're going to be looking at Terry Hobbs. They're going to be talking about Terry Hobbs. I mean, uh-huh. he at one time had a supporter writing him in prison to try to get incriminating information from him. He had people like me and my friend Sean and Melody Meadows and a few other people coming out to Millington to interview him and take him to dinner. Uh-huh. He had people interested in him and wanting to talk. He had Bruce and Joe buying him with alcohol and marijuana. And all that was going to go away when Terry Hobbs became the suspected juror. And that's when he he liked the attention is what you're saying. Correct. He wanted to maintain the attention. And so in order to maintain the attention, he said, hey, I'll help. I'll set Terry up. I'll, I'll tape record our conversations and get incriminating statements from him. I'll make shit up. I'll say that the Hobbs house had a picture of Damien sitting on the couch with Steve. Oh, wow. Because they had known Damien at some point in time. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think they'd had any contact with him during that time period, but they had known Damien at some point in time. Right. So, again, you know, he just, he did not want the gravy train. He didn't want to get thrown off the caboose. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to hang on. So he he had to make himself useful to the movement. Mm-hmm. And I think he also was involved in aiding and abetting a lot of the harassment and stalking that Terry was subjected to. Right. And when when uh, Vicki Edwards, who's a a relation of Terry's, you know, she's got a book. It's going to be coming out hopefully soon. We'll talk to her more in depth about all that. Mm-hmm. But, well, you know, that, the, the things that were done to buyers were done to Terry. Right. Well, well and I mean, here's the exact same stuff that you saw that happened to John Mark in the first two Paradise Lost movies, you know. Mm-hmm. He was painted as a crazy person, and then in the third one, all of a sudden, everybody still thinks he's crazy, but let's be honest here. Now we just kind of look at him as a sympathetic figure more than a murderer. Right. And, you know, it, it's and that's the thing. He's not sympathetic. He's he's, a, he's an opportunist. Mm-hmm. He wants his you know. 15 minutes. He wants to make sure his 15 minutes don't end. Right, so. right. But uh, and well, the the shame is is that he feels justified, even though you know he's doing to Terry what was done to him. He feels justified. Right. So, but again, we'll you know we'll go into that a little bit more. But it was it was great talking to Gary last week, and we are going to um, to get something put together and figure out you know how we're going to approach it. Luckily. He was an editor, so I badly uh-huh. need one of those sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, talk about another case we fo- we followed pretty in-depth. Uh, Dahlia DiPolito. Uh, what's yeah. going on with her left her? Okay, we spoke about her appeal, um, and she the state has filed their opposite their response excuse me to her appellate brief um she will likely file a reply brief and then the Florida 4th District Court of Appeal will decide whether they want oral argument if they want it submitted on the brief then they will come out with their decision Whenever they come out with their decision, it may pro- it's probably likely going to be a year to two years to maybe three years right. before we have a direct appeal decision. Okay. And the irony of it all is had she pled guilty in 2009, she would likely have only been sentenced to four years. And she would have been done now. Yeah. Rather than eight years on house arrest, 
three trials. She would have had a felony on her record, but, I mean, let's face it, Mike, she's got audio and video that clearly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, show she intended to have her husband killed. And that is a crime. I've seen people say, come on, nobody died. 16 years is too long. But wanting someone to kill your husband and, you know, giving them a plan and putting down a down payment and agreeing to pay them more money once the deed is done, that's a crime. Absolutely. It's definitely, and at the very least, it shows intent to commit, you know, to do murder for hire. Correct. So, um, and then also she has filed, she had filed two motions for review of the denial of appellate bond. Uh-huh. Um, because in Florida, <laughs> the crazy state that they are, um, when you're convicted of a felony, you can still be out on bond during your appeal with strict provisions with the ankle monitor and, you know, uh, sheriff's office monitoring your comings and goings, but you can be out on, on appellate bond until right. your appeal is decided. Um, but Judge Kelly, Judge Colbath, the first judge, in spite of the scathing sentencing, uh, his words, scathing words of sentencing, he did grant her an appellate bond, which resulted in the eight years between her first and second and third trials. Right. But Judge Kelly decided not to do that, and the Fourth District Court of Appeal uh, denied her request to review. So she is in, uh, I think it's a prison in Ocala, Florida, mm-hmm. and she is serving her 16-year sentence. Well, good. That's definitely good. And when then she also was she denied... Pardon? When did she start her 16 years? Uh she was transferred, I believe, in October of last year. She was convicted in June, sentenced in July, had a bond hearing in August, and then I believe the end of September, beginning of October, they transferred her. She probably went to from Palm Beach Sheriff to a, like a central facility to decide where she should go. Uh, to serve her time, and then she was transferred to the prison in Ocala in October. Oh, I, I think it was right around her birthday. And then she also filed a, a writ with the Supreme Court on a gag order issue between her second and third trials. The judge entered a gag order, preventing any of the parties from speaking about facts of the case or, you know, specific information, facts, witnesses, et cetera. And um, she appealed that to the Supreme Court because her attorneys argued it was a violation of their First Amendment rights, and uh, the Supreme Court denied the writ. So a court does have the power to 
to uh, regulate what attorneys can and cannot say in a high-profile case. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about another one that you're very passionate about that uh, we've talked about not only on this show but also uh, back on the American Idiot show. We actually did a show on this one as well. Uh, Rodney Reed. What's going on yeah. with Mr. Reed these days? Uh, I know – uh, I know briefly after our show, in full disclosure on American Idiot, his uh, wife or girlfriend or whatever she was was uh, messaging me on Facebook for the longest time, trying to convince me how uh, he's innocent. But uh, other than that, I really haven't heard anything. Well, he has. Uh, he filed a request with the U.S. Supreme Court requesting that they review Texas DNA law. And some media outlets interpreted that as asking the Supreme Court to grant DNA testing. But the Supreme Court can't grant DNA testing uh, in a state case for a state prisoner. Um, And the Supreme Court denied that writ. Right. So um, that has been the the a lot of the the Innocence Project attorneys are now filing. They're filing federal section 1983 civil rights lawsuits. Those aren't succeeding. They're filing writs with the U.S. Supreme Court. They're not that those aren't succeeding. Um, so they're trying to uh, they're trying to broaden basically DNA testing access. Right. Right. And uh, one of the things that they they can't seem to recognize is that in every state, one of the factors that you have to meet in order to gr- to be granted DNA testing is that exculpatory results would have resulted in a reasonable jury not convicting at trial had those results been available. Uh And in Rodney Reed's case, because his conviction is based on DNA evidence, in the absence of reliable evidence of a pre-existing relationship with the victim, Right. He he's his a jury with it doesn't matter what DNA came up on what evidence. The evidence inside and outside Stacy's body and on her clothing and her back brace belongs to Rodney Reed and no jury no jury would acquit him on the basis of that. In the absence of evidence of a relationship and we have no reliable evidence of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, and he has filed. He has filed his ninth writ with the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, alleging that scientific testimony at his trial has been withdrawn; that it was false. However. The basis of that writ was raised in his seventh writ, 
which was dismissed by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he's got new letters and affidavits in support of those claims now is likely not going to help. State has filed a motion to dismiss. And more likely than not, the state of Texas is going to dismiss that okay. ninth writ. And we're still awaiting a review of the eighth writ, which was returned to the trial court in October for hearing. Relief was denied in January. And then uh, he is now appealing that with the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Right. So, Lisa, I've got to ask you. In a state where you pretty much should be a pro at this, how does paperwork error force a cancellation on an execution date for somebody like the next gentleman uh, we have on the list here, Larry Swearingen? Now, I'm not yeah. sure. I don't quite remember when we did that episode, but June 27th, his date was canceled, his execution date, because of a paperwork error. What is Correct. number one paperwork error in uh, an execution <laughs> date? Number two, what's that mean? Do they have to start all well, over again? No, as I recall, what happened was the order setting his execution date was signed, but the clerk's office did not send the order out to his counsel. Uh And in Texas, I think it has to be 60 days or 90 days before the date of the execution to give them time to pursue whatever writs or legal process they want to pursue. Right. And in Swearingen's case, as I recall and as I understood it, the clerk's office didn't send it within that that time frame. And things, time frames and things like that are part of due process. Right. So if Texas says the attorney for the condemned inmate has to receive the paperwork 90 days before the execution date, at least 90 days before the execution date, then it, it's a violation of due process if they receive it 87 days before or 86 so days screwed, before. So who screwed up in that situation? Was it the Texas Department of Corrections or was it the governor's office? No, I... As, as I recall, it was actually a clerk. It was probably uh, somewhere within the clerk's office in Montgomery County. And, you know, it's a human system. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, that it, it could have been that the person in Montgomery County who does that job was out on vacation and nobody uh-huh. was doing her job while she was gone. Right. And when she came back, she had this stack of things that had to go out, and she had uh-huh. to just work through them. And you know, it and it could have been an oversight. It could have been, right. you know, a, a, the postage machine didn't stamp the envelope. It went into the postal service. The postal service eventually spits it back out because I've had, I've had staffus with mail, and we've gotten things back two or three months later. 
Mm-hmm. We've gotten things back. We just got something back the other day um, to the wrong. It was a, a bad address. And the letter was dated in May. And in August, oh, wow. we get it back. Return to sender cannot forward. Hmm. Um, so I don't think it's that. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't assign blame or fault because I. I don't know. First of all, what the circumstances are. Um, so I wouldn't assign blame or fault on anyone. And it's a situation where it happened, and the Department of Corrections, the court in Montgomery County, or whomever, you know, did the right thing, and they vacated that execution date and reset it in a time frame that would allow Swearingen's counsel to get the notice that they're entitled to get under state law. Right. And, you know, that's, um, like I said, it, it, I wouldn't assign blame or fault to anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just something that in a human system, it's occasionally going to happen. Okay. Okay. Now, is that the only big thing that's happened uh, since, you know, we went off the air with that? Well, yeah, we haven't gotten any information, as you recall. Uh, Anthony Shore, just prior to his execution, revealed that Larry Swearingen was trying to get him to take responsibility for Melissa Trotter's murder. Right. And um, Shore had decided not to do that, but apparently the whole scheme led to the state of Texas renewing its uh, desire to do DNA testing, and that's something that a lot of people uh, have been misinformed about. Actually, at one point, the state did want to do DNA testing, and swearing as attorneys would not agree to DNA testing being done. Mm-hmm. And I think it, because some of the testing would be destructive, would consume right. all of the evidence, and there wouldn't be any left over for swearing to have his own experts review or test themselves, uh, I believe that he has to agree. Okay. And he would not agree. So the denial of testing... Um, and some of it was the state wanted to agree to test limited evidence. Right. And Swearingen wants to test everything. Kind of all or nothing. Right. And Last so thing. now they are That's testing limited items. And unfortunately, I don't have any of those pleadings. I have not written to Montgomery County to get them. But I will be writing to Montgomery County to get them to see what they are testing. And I'm also monitoring that docket to see as soon as results come in to see what those results may be. Absolutely, absolutely. So what's going on with old Hank Skinner? 
who's probably got the coolest name on this list. I'm just saying. Um, he is also uh, in the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, supplemental briefs on his denial of relief based on DNA testing results is uh, working its way through the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, the supplemental briefing has been filed by, the, by Skinner in the state. Skinner has filed a reply brief. Um, and it is kind of more of the same. It ignores anything like the DNA on the knife. It ignores that and talks about right. the hairs and unknown DNA on a dish towel and, you know, all those things that um, C excludes him, a jury wouldn't convict him. His DNA mixed with the victim's blood on the knife is inconsequential. Mm-hmm. But unknown DNA on a dish towel, uh, hairs, mitochondrial DNA from hairs, in Hank Skinner's attorney's world are more probative than Hank Skinner's DNA mixed with the victim's blood on knife. That right. was a murder weapon. Um, they're okay. also arguing that because the victim's DNA wasn't mixed with Skinner's on the doorknobs, that Skinner must be innocent. Okay. Okay. So. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, That's okay. So now we're at Mr. Cooper here. And yes. the first thing when you Google Mr. Cooper and hit the news, the latest story is from the Los Angeles Times and it says they framed me. So uh I'm assuming this is the uh this is what he's coming up with now is he was framed, right? Well, he's been saying he was framed all along. Okay. Um it's the same it's the same song and dance and um the his his legal remedies are exhausted mhm now he is in the clemency process with governor jerry brown in california and on july 3rd governor brown's office uh sent an inquiry to cooper's attorneys which, if you look at some of the other media articles, um, some journalists have interpreted have interpreted this letter to be an indication that Governor Brown is going to order investigation and DNA testing. Now, I obtained a copy of this letter from the governor's office, and having read it myself, I do not get that impression. Uh, it is asking Norman Heil to clarify some information and to answer some questions from the governor. Uh, but some of them are very pointed. And um, I don't see how you could get the impression that the governor's office is considering ordering an investigation and testing in light of some of these questions. And uh, let me... 
let me give you an idea of what some of those questions are. Um, Okay, that was a really good one, and I can't find it now. Okay, Uh, they're asking them to identify every item of forensic evidence that you maintain was planted or tampered with and identify with as much specificity as possible who you contend planted or tampered with the evidence. Mm -hmm. Another... um, To the extent not addressed above, please describe in greater detail your allegation regarding the planning or tampering of evidence with respect to cigarette butt evidence related to the Ryan car. Are you claiming that the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department planted or tampered with this evidence in 1983, in 2002, or both? Are you alleging that others, including but not limited to the California Department of Justice Crime Lab, and or law enforcement in San Diego were also involved, and if so, when? Uh, there also right. he, he asked about when the when Cooper believes the blood was planted on the tan T-shirt, okay. um, and then uh, you highlight in your client's clemency petition the fact that the police issued an all points bulletin for three white or Hispanic suspects. At or about the same time, you appear to also argue that the police were planting evidence to frame Mr. Cooper. If this is your contention, how do you explain this apparently inconsistent behavior by the police? Right. If you claim that law enforcement planted Mr. Cooper's blood Prior to the advent of DNA testing, why, in your view, would they plant such evidence? Hmm. Very interesting questions. Very good questions. And then it also uh, goes into uh, Cooper's escape from the mental hospital in Pennsylvania in 82 while awaiting trial on a number of charges and that he had kidnapped, raped, and stole the car of a teenage girl who interrupted him while he was burglarizing a home, um, and wondering if that should have any bearing on Cooper's clemency application. Mm -hmm. And um, also Cooper's arrest for rape on a boat near the time of his capture. Mm -hmm. So reading this letter in full and those particular questions, I really don't see, you know, they are giving him an opportunity to answer the questions and provide additional information, but they're pretty tough questions. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much put up or shut up. Hey, you want to make these claims? Well, (laughs) tell me what you got. Right. And uh, Norman Heil has until August 17th, which is this Friday, to answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will, of course, look for this uh, answer to see if it's posted anywhere. Um, And if I get it, I will, of course, we'll we'll talk about it on a future episode. And um, 
also the this, the uh, district attorney in San Bernardino will also have an opportunity to address Mr. Hiles' responses, and uh, I will obtain a copy of that as well. And what I may do is wait until both are available, and then we can talk about them all uh, together rather than piecemeal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, awesome. Awesome. So then that leaves us with the federal case that we uh, examined. The uh, former Green Beret in the Army, Jeffrey McDonald. Um, yes. What's going on with Jeff? Well, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, uh, Federal Court of Appeal, has not rendered a decision on his federal habeas corpus appeal. It was argued in January of 2017, I believe. Uh-huh. So uh, it's quite frustrating that they have not rendered any decision yet. Uh, an interesting thing I've seen, uh, Scott Foley isn't totally convict, convinced that convict, that Jeffrey is guilty. So, I mean, there are some people out there that, uh, that, uh, believe that it could be possible that the guy is innocent. I mean, this is a gentleman no. who wrote it. Do I know? I've. Scott Foley is an actor who played Jeffrey McDonald in a TV movie, mm-hmm. not particularly well-produced TV movie. Oh, really? Um, and, you know, more likely than not, Scott Foley has been exposed to the, the blonde woman in the floppy hat and Acid is groovy, kill the pigs, uh, four intruders breaking into the house, and has not been exposed to the distribution of fibers in the apartment, including under Colette, Kim, and Christie's bodies. The distribution uh-huh. of blood stains in the apartment, including the absence of type B blood in the living room of the apartment where McDonald claims to have been bludgeoned and stabbed repeatedly by these intruders. Right. And they have, you know, I I, I don't put a lot of stock in actors' opinions about anything. Um, Even if they agree with me, I don't necessarily put a lot of stock. I, I, you know, they're entitled to their opinion, whether they're right or wrong. It doesn't make any difference to me. Uh, I, I wish some of them would, would just shut up and act. Right. I mean, right. I used to love Johnny Depp. I used to watch anything. I bought the first two Pirates of the Caribbean movies and watched them over and over and over again. And then he sided with Damien Eccles mm-hmm. and decided Damien Eccles was his long-lost brother from another mother. And now I cannot watch the man in anything, ever. 
Right, right. I love the Harry Potter series. I love Fantastic Beasts until the end when Johnny Depp was revealed as Grindelwald. Uh-huh. And then I said, oh, well, that's a, that's a sequel I won't be watching. Right. right. And then Definitely. there's his, you know, his his drunken drug behavior and his abuse of Amber Heard. True. And the Me Too movement and all these people getting in trouble, you know, for indiscretions and... You know, everybody makes excuses for him, probably because he's very liberal and very progressive. Very true. Very true. People tend to uh, liberally like stuff like that. They they want to believe what he says about Amber Heard just making all this up for the money. Uh huh. But I saw that cell phone video. And, you know, that wasn't, he wasn't acting. And he was in a rage. And he was drunk. Mm hmm. Well, so, so we'll have to wait and see what the Fourth Circuit does. But the day that that, the, the day that, that comes out, we will put good old Jeffrey McDonald back on the schedule. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's talk about uh, a man that's been dead for hmm, a little over a year now, about a year and a half yeah. now, actually, if you count it up. Mr. Liddell Lee, um, yeah. gentleman put to death by the state of Arkansas in that, uh, in that big, uh, they call it like a assembly line execution, I think is the term they use uh, when they put him to death. Put all these gentlemen to death. So let's talk about what's going on with his case. It seems like to me it's gone silent, but I'm not sure if you may. Have well, it actually I put him back on. I put him on the list because in February of this year, uh, the BBC produced uh, documentaries about the Arkansas cases, and they were titled "Life and Death Row." Mm-hmm. And they looked at Liddell Lee's case. They looked at Stacy Johnson. Um, was it Williams, Jack Jones? I can't remember who all the all eight were, but they looked at each of those cases. Uh, and it premiered in February of this year. It is available on YouTube. Right. I don't know whether it's the full documentary. It was on, I saw it on National Geographic Channel at one point. Mm-hmm. And I watched part of one, the one about Stacey Johnson. Mm-hmm. And then I think I was prepping for another show, and I really couldn't sit there and watch TV all day. And so I ended up, not watching, and then when I went to look on demand, they weren't there. So, but um, these these were released in February of this year. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting. You look them up on YouTube, and and it looks at. Uh, I think it looked at five of the cases, five of the eight cases. 
the five that were actually well wait I think there was only four. Well, that four, I believe it was four were executed and four were four were four got stays. Right, right. So, um, yeah, I was really disappointed that I I couldn't watch it, and then it wasn't on on demand, and it's not on Netflix. But I will keep looking, and if it shows up on Netflix, I will watch it. Okay, okay, awesome, awesome. Definitely keep me posted because if it shows up on Netflix, I definitely want to see it. And you too. Yeah. I'll uh, check that out. So uh, I see, you know, back in June, a uh, settlement was reached, obviously, with the Northwestern University for $40 million, I believe. But uh, Mr. Simon, what's going on with Al Story Simon? Well, nothing is new as far as I can tell. I don't believe that he has actually been exonerated. He was relieved. Right. But the state of Illinois is a bit uh, reticent about officially exonerating him. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to uh, Mr. Mr. Prime and Mr. Car- uh Crawford, and right. haven't heard back from them to see if there were any new new developments, but I don't, I don't think there are. I think our Illinois will probably not grant him exoneration because then Illinois would also have to settle up with him. A liability, right. Right. Correct. And really, he is one of the ones that they should because they should have caught the dirty dealing that was being perpetrated on their system uh-huh. by Northwestern students, David Protest, Paul Cialino, Jack Rimland, and everybody else involved with Anthony Porter's exoneration. Right, right. Um, because, you know, that... That kind of stuff should not should not manage to get one person off death row and another person in prison for the rest of their life. Absolutely. You see it all the time. These people uh, get, you know, exonerated from whatever they were wrongfully convicted of. And sure enough, you know, they're sent uh they the next thing they do is they sue the state and they get a lot of money out of it so i mean what's to say that this gentleman shouldn't be getting that of course right. they're not gonna they're not gonna let it go that simply but uh lisa before we get to our last update here before we uh jump into our future cases we're going to cover we're going to take a quick commercial break and uh we'll be right back all right Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub On Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub On Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub On Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
All right, are we back? Yes, ma'am, we sure are back. But, uh, you know, we just got done talking about our story, Simon, whenever we went to the break there. And, um, you know, like I said, you see it all the time. And that's exactly what I feel like. You're right. I feel like the state of Illinois just doesn't want to uh, admit their wrongdoing in this case. But a man who yeah. is now also uh, is the last uh, case we're going to examine uh, or the last update we're going to give, Christopher Anthony Young. Um, he's now a man that was executed July 17th of this year, correct? Correct. What, uh, um, he, mm-hmm. Well, uh, as we discussed when we when we talked about Anthony Young's case, um, he filed a petition for clemency, which was denied by right. the Texas Board of Pardon and Paroles. And in Texas, the governor basically acts on the recommendation of the Board of Pardon and Paroles. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have independent uh, power to act without their approval. Okay. As I understand it, some states the governor, you know, is kind of the final say, and even if the board denies, he can grant commutation or clemency or parole or pardon. But in Texas. He has to act on their recommendation. If they don't recommend it, he can't do it. If they recommend it, he can do it. And um, in Young's case, one of his arguments was that, uh, you know, he had people who didn't want him to die. He had uh, improved himself in prison. But he also kind of said, hey, y'all just granted clemency to Whitaker who's uh, who one of his victims did not want to see him executed and my victim's family member doesn't want to see me executed so you should grant me clemency as well and oh you didn't do it to him so you can't do it to me excuse correct correct (laughs) Um, and so the board of pardons and paroles Denied his his request uh, for clemency, six to uh-huh. six, and his attorneys filed a section 1983 civil rights action because they felt that his race was a factor in the decision. And um, basically the argument was Whitaker was white. His victims were white. Christopher Young is black. His victim was South Asian. And that's discrimination. So uh, he filed the claim with the U.S. District Court. And I think it was more to try to get a stay and try to continue appealing the the conviction and sentence um, to delay execution Uh that his suit was handled 
summarily by the Texas Southern District Court, uh, U.S. District Court for Southern District of Texas, uh, and dismissed. And the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the dismissal. And so the clemency petition, because remember you and I spoke about it, and I thought, well, Mm -hmm. they might try to keep it alive to perhaps, you know, try and get information about the process in Texas. But the federal court pretty much shut that down. And basically they, they held that the federal court didn't really have any authority to interfere in Texas procedure because Texas procedure meets due process. Yes, and ma'am. they also found they they found that Young's claims of racial bias were speculative. Right, right. Um, and I mean, ultimately, what he was his denial was on the thirteenth, and he was put to death on the seventeenth. Right. Correct. Correct. And the federal court, as I said, the federal court. Um, they deny they dismissed the 1983 claims on the 17th, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal affirmed that denial also on the 17th. Now, did he have anything else as far as like you know you hear the normal at least in Arkansas I remember the normal oh now I can't you know fight the fact that I'm guilty or whatever, but I'm going to fight the fact that lethal injection is uh, inhumane or something. Did he have any of those claims, or after the 13th, did he pretty much just, okay, you got me? I I believe that Texas procedures have not been challenged. Um, Texas has had, I believe, a system and access to drugs that they haven't encountered the problems that Arkansas, because I, I remember Arkansas, in fact, one of the arguments that I always make with people who say Eccles could have been executed was, no, he couldn't have, because mm-hmm. the last execution was 2006, and they didn't resume execution until, until 2017, because they had to rework their protocol, and then they, they had challenges to the protocol. Protocol. Yeah. <clears throat> And so, I mean, 11 years, he would not have been executed. He could not have been executed. Mm-hmm. And also because he had, he still had state and federal post-conviction claims available mm-hmm. to him. But um, Texas has not had the challenges that I think Kentucky and uh, Oklahoma and Arkansas and a couple other states have had. And mm-hmm. um, I don't think they use midazolam. Or if they did, then when the Supreme Court paved the way for that, they, you know, I think there was one brief challenge where Texas was included because of midazolam. I don't really right. know what their protocol is. I don't know what drugs 
um, they use or or what the thing is. I'll I'll look I'll look into that. Actually, I don't believe see. I know what the protocol is either. I Not know Arkansas lamb, and actually, I just know about the Medazolam, which I believe yeah. is the one in question. That, Nebraska, I think, went to fentanyl today. Yeah, which is a powerful yeah. opiate. I saw that that they had a new drug that uh, the mm-hmm. company in Germany has actually filed a lawsuit because you know same situation. Oh, we well didn't know the drug as as I've said, they need to be careful because what they're doing is they are interfering with the supply. But in a lot of states, like Texas, uh, they'll go back to electric chair, firing squad. I believe it's they'll go back Georgia. to these other methods, and you know they'll 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 forego lethal injection, um, but they'll have other methods, and they'll they'll oh, use yeah. them. I and believe it was Georgia. I would say if you have a problem, blame the companies because they took the – and come on, it's painless. Yeah. You're, You're unconscious. One of the funny things is the uh, death row inmates who are executed will not allow themselves to be autopsied. Right. Well, that's interesting, and, actually, that you say that, because isn't every death row inmate that's executed by the state, isn't their death ruled a homicide officially? Well, it's officially homicide. However, the it says homicide legal execution. Okay. So there's two different... It's homicide because it is... It's not natural, it's not suicide, it's not accidental. Right. It is done by, you know, I guess by... A human who... Someone. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's also legal execution. Mm -hmm. And it's not murder. Not all homicide is murder. Okay. So, um, you know, I mean, shooting someone in self-defense is homicide, but it's justified because it's self-defense. Right. 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 Well, Lisa, we've done a lot here in, what, the eight months we've been on the air, but we've got a lot of stuff coming up, including a Mm -hmm. case that I think you are pretty much, you know, we joke about from time to time. We think that it's cursed. And that's uh, Casey Anthony. So let's go through yeah. these cases and let's talk a little bit about each and each one of them. Introduce the audience to the participants because some of these you're not going to recognize. Obviously, some of them you will. But uh, obviously, we start off with the big one, uh, Casey Anthony. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, every well, it seems like she goes away from the you know the public conscience for finally just slips away from the public conscience and then 
right as she's gone, something brings her back in. And, like, Correct. that's the last thing I see happen, because let's be honest, that's all she really wants. She wants to be this public figure that is talked about and stuff, and she's an attention-seeking, excuse my language, but asshole. Yeah, I agree. But, I mean, obviously, we all remember her story. She uh, was uh, charged with the murder of, and I believe, was Kaylee two at the time? She was um, born in 2005, so she was actually three, Okay, going on four. Mhm. And she was and. last seen by her grandfather leaving mm-hmm. the house with Casey. Casey said she was going to drop Kaylee off at the nanny and go to work. What George and Cindy Anthony did not know was that the nanny did not exist but and Casey didn't, didn't have a job. Casey's job was apparently doing. I, who knows what Kate? That is murky, and I don't know if I'm going to wade in there, because mm-hmm. Lord only knows what's waiting for me. Um, so yeah, and and for 31 days, Casey avoided her mom, and the thing, the thing that's always bothered me is, during that time, she always assured her mom. Kaylee was with the nanny. Kaylee was in, with the nanny's family. The nanny was in a car accident, but Kaylee was okay. They were staying in Jacksonville. They were in Tampa. They were all over Florida. And she was at SeaWorld, and she was doing all these fun things. And then finally, when the car gets towed, that's when Cindy gets concerned and tracks Casey down and finds Casey without Kaylee, and then all of a sudden Casey says, Kaylee was kidnapped by the nanny. And by the way, let me just mention, you know, as much as the prosecutor or the defense wanted to attack uh, George, I believe his name is George, but uh, George, you know, that mom is something else. She went from, it smelled like a dead body was in there to, I don't know if I necessarily said body. I I think part of the problem with Cindy is she cannot cope with what Casey did. Mm -hmm. George and Lee have dealt with it. Of course, George had help because Casey and Jose Baez tried to throw him under the bus by claiming he's the one who took Kaylee and dumped her body. And then let Casey sit in jail and let Casey be tried. Because he's such a terrible um, father. But you know you know what? Well, because Casey lied and said he, was, he sexually abused her for years. Right. Which, how do you tell when Jody Arias is lying? Her lips are moving she- and sound is coming out of her mouth. The same thing applies to Casey Anthony. How do you tell Absolutely. she's lying? Her lips are moving and words are coming out of her mouth. That's how you tell mm-hmm. she's lying. 
And she's Absolutely. good. And she's one of those. She's a lot like Jody in that even when they're at Universal, they know she no longer works here. And the cops are like, we just want to find Kaylee. Just tell us the truth. She doesn't say, okay, I woke up. My dad came. She was holding, he was holding Kaylee's body. She must have drowned in the pool. I'm so sorry. I panicked. I dumped her. No, she doesn't do that. She doubles down on the, the, uh, the fictional nanny. Yep, and she literally doubles down on that story. And she continued telling that story to her parents. And one of the biggest reasons, three reasons, I don't believe George had anything to do with it. First of all, George did not see Kaylee as one of the family pets. Uh-huh. He would never, ever have taken her body and thrown it off the road on Suburban Drive in that swamp. If he found Kaylee drowned in the pool, he would have been administering CPR and screaming at Casey to call 911. And he would have done everything he could to try to save her. Um, Second is that there were a couple of times where it was just George and Casey on the jail videos. And not once during those times did Casey say, look, Dad, this is getting out of hand. They're accusing me of doing something to Kaylee. You know what happened, please. They're not going to believe me anymore because I've been lying my ass off for so long. Please, you've got to go to them. You've got to tell them what happened. She doesn't do that. Right. She's talking to him, you were a great father, and Kaylee loved you so much, and I love you so much, and Mom loves you, and everything, everything's going to be okay. God's going to do, you know, whatever God's going to do. Oh, Lord have mercy. Um, right. And the third reason is just it, George wasn't lying to anybody for 31 days. Uh-huh. You George know, was up I mean, you know. Telling the truth. George, you know, George was not lying to anyone for thirty one days. But no, I don't think Kate I don't think Cindy can deal with what with the ramifications of Casey deliberately killing Kaylee. And that is what I I think that is what happened. I think right. she was having problems with her parents. Her parents loved Kaylee more than they loved her. Her parents were going to take custody of Kaylee away from her and throw her out of the house. And she's uh-huh. an impulsive, vindictive little bitch, and she said so herself. And so she uh-huh. killed Kaylee. And then she was going to get away with it, and she did. I mean, my, my theory is a little bit more simple than that, and we'll get into that whenever, you know, we do the show. I believe that's next week is when we're going to do uh, Casey, but uh, yeah, I'll definitely get into yes. what I believe. And we are going, happens. we are going to, we are going to inform our employers that we are not available next Tuesday, mm-hmm. August fourteenth, twenty eighteen. We are going to take okay. our vitamin C. Mm-hmm. We are going to get plenty, plenty of sleep. 
we're going to have a nice dinner and mm-hmm. come in raring to do the show. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> but make sure yeah, it's another good one. To do that. Uh, and then we also got Scott Peterson. So these are the two yeah. that I believe most are going to recognize the most. Scott Peterson obviously yeah. convicted of uh, the murder of his wife, Lacey, uh, pregnant wife, Lacey, correct? If I'm not yet correct. And they're, and they're unwarned son, Connor, because uh, when Casey died on December 23rd or December 24th, Connor was due to be born in, I think, January or February. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that. So close. he was he, – he could have been delivered any time mm-hmm. and, and survived. Um, I think she may have been a little farther along than she thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so he was convicted of the murder of Lacey and Connor. And, uh, correct? Yes, he is on death row in California, although um, he was convicted in, what, 2005, I believe? And his direct appeal and first state habeas, first state post-conviction claim are just now being briefed with the California Supreme Court. Okay. So, yeah, Texas is the interstate. It's probably going to be. California is the Queen Mary crossing the Atlantic Ocean. There we go. There we go. That's better. (laughs) Okay. Unless you're um, Tukey Willie. And, you know, Scott, Scott Peterson has a pretty good chance of dying of natural causes of old age. Yeah. Rather than Definitely. being executed in California. So uh, um but yeah, he was uh and he's a you know, he's another piece of work. Uh how do you tell when he's lying? He opens his mouth. No, he, lips are moving and words are coming out. Well there we go too. He was <laughs> one of the, he was one of them, honestly, he reminds me of the male version of Casey and that he was the concerned husband out searching, wearing the shirts and everything, just like Casey. The only thing is, I don't remember a lot of lies. Now, I was a lot. No, 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 no. He was, he was the quote concerned husband trying to avoid the cameras because his girlfriend in Fresno. Yep, I remember that now. I remember. And he went to a vigil, and he went and got on the phone with this woman and told her. He was in Paris for New Year's Eve. Oh, Lord. At the Eiffel Tower, and the fireworks were amazing. I mean, you know, that one, that one wins a prize. Yeah. And, and the sad part is that she believed and, it. Well, no, because she had already, by that point, she had already contacted the police and was recording her phone calls with Scott Peterson. Mhm. Mhm. So she knew something was up. And she went to police and she said, "I've been dating him." And they said, right. "Really?" 
and she did. She and she was a the detectives. If you watch any of the specials about Peterson uh, for or against him, the detectives say she was like a champ because she got the recorder going and got on the phone, and you could not so. And uh, you know, she he lied to her. And this is one of the things I have a problem with women sometimes because mm-hmm. a lot of women, when their man is cheating on them, they get mad at the other woman. Mm-hmm. And they blame her. And nine times out of ten, the other woman is being lied to. The other sure. woman is told, you're not together anymore. You're divorced. Or the other woman, as Scott told Amber, he lost his wife, and he was approaching the first Christmas without her. This is a Thanksgiving when she's home about to pop out his first baby, and he's telling his girlfriend that he, quote, lost his wife. Right, and then he made that happen <laughs> rather than just Correct. letting the truth. <laughs> Correct, and luckily she was not lost. She and Connor were both found, Uh and they were found in a place that irrefutably linked them to Scott Peterson. Mm -hmm. There's no controversy. No, I I don't. I think it's going to be kind of hard to, you know. Although a lot of people say, "Well, he was a liar. He was having an affair." Blah blah. That doesn't make him a murderer. Well, no, it doesn't. But it's pretty strong circumstantial evidence that something was going on. And if if they're a liar about one thing, how can you believe anything they say? That's always been my problem. Plus, let's be honest here, their bodies happened to be where he was fishing. Come on now. Correct. 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 This isn't Dexter. (laughs) This isn't a TV show Dexter. This isn't you know, that type of situation. Right. But, uh, let's, let's talk about Adnan, or Adnan, or however yes. you say this name. Uh, what are we going to talk about with him? Adnan Syed was convicted of the murder of his ex-girlfriend, Ha Min Lee, or Hai Min Lee, uh, in Maryland. And this was in 1999 or 2000. Um, He has recently won a new trial based on the failure of the, his defense attorney who passed away several years ago and was not alive to defend herself in his Uh post-conviction hearing, uh, not calling an alibi witness. Uh, The decision is actually on review with the Maryland Supreme Court. Uh, The post-conviction claim was granted, the new trial was granted by the judge in the trial court. It was appealed to the Intermediate Appeals Court, which affirmed the grant of new trial. And now it's before the state Supreme Court. So we'll mm-hmm. see how we'll we'll see how Maryland rules on that. Absolutely, absolutely. And 
that brings us to one of the cases that I'm very interested in hearing your opinions on. Wanda Jean yeah. Allen. She was a woman Correct. that was uh, she was a woman that was executed in Oklahoma. I believe it was 2001 or 2002. Uh, this one, I believe, we are going to have a lot of conversation about the idea of executing potentially mentally handicapped individuals. Um, Correct. I don't know if you've seen the documentary, but uh, I want to encourage everybody before that episode, go to YouTube. It's on free. It's for free on YouTube. HBO made it. It's really good. It's uh, the execution of Wanda Jean, and uh, you can definitely see the last. Uh, it'll give you a good insight on the last, uh, the last, I guess, appeals before somebody's put, put to death. And then uh, I guess at the very end, they did the execution day. So uh, definitely Correct. something interesting to look at there because, you know, at one point when Wanda Jean was originally arrested for a mur- previ- murdering a previous girlfriend, I think it was that she had been tested and she was found to be mentally uh, retarded based upon an injury she had received as a child, I want to say. And, I don't uh, believe that that is accurate as I understood it. I'd done a little mm-hmm. bit of research. She actually got away with the first killing. Right. She got a slap on the wrist. By pleading guilty to manslaughter. Right, right. Slap and did a little bit of time in prison and was released. She met the girlfriend, the second girlfriend that she killed in prison. Mm-hmm. Right. I think she was also doing time for manslaughter. Um, so they they were a pair. Oh yes, they were um, definitely a pair. But I believe it was and, um, she declared mentally retarded, or she had severe cognitive disorder, or something like that, where she couldn't understand what was going on. Right. I, again, I, I've done a little bit of research on it. We'll talk about it more uh, in. Well, you know what? Let's look. I'm, I've got the schedule in front of me. We're mm-hmm. doing um, uh, Casey and Scott Peterson, Adnan Syed. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. we'll do Wanda Jean on September 11th. That'll be our next episode after Adnan Syed. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Definitely, yeah. And, I mean, I can't wait to get into this because, you know, I am going to ask you questions about the uh, – because mm-hmm. I don't know much when it comes to this. But that does seem like something that is uh, brought up a lot in these execution cases is, you know, the Supreme Court's mm-hmm. judgment that you can't execute mentally handicapped people. So one of the right. things I want to bring do you believe that Wanda was actually severely lacking as far as being able to understand the consequences of her actions? Or if you think that she just made this story, or not necessarily made this story, but embellished this story when she knew she had um, her clemency hearing coming up? Correct. Correct. Also, right, yeah, we'll, we'll, what? I, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go into that on, on the 11th. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And we also have, is this the Stacey Johnson I'm thinking of, the one from uh, Arkansas? Yes. Okay. 
so go ahead and give us a little bit of insight on uh, Stacy. Well, he was set to be executed for a murder in DeQueen, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And he was actually, he and Liddell Lee had both petitioned for post-conviction DNA testing. And Liddell Lee's post-conviction DNA testing was denied after a hearing and the Arkansas State Supreme Court affirmed that denial. Stacy Johnson's request was denied without a hearing. Mm-hmm. And so the Arkansas State Supreme Court said, no, he's entitled to a hearing on his request. And so they stayed his execution and they uh, sent it back to the trial court to have hearings. And that hearing was held in November, and the decision was made in, I think, May of this year. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on getting the order from the court. Okay. So we'll put Stacy on the calendar for September 18th. Okay. Can't wait to talk about that one. And uh, Betty Broderick. You had uh, messaged me this past uh, this past week about Betty. Tell the listeners about Betty Broderick and her um, counterpart, or who you compare her to. <laughs> Betty Broderick is uh, is a former housewife and mother from San Diego, California. She was married to a very successful medical malpractice attorney in California by the name of Dan Broderick. Um, I compared Betty to Jody Arias. If she couldn't have him, nobody would. And in addition to killing her former husband, she also killed his new wife six months after their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um. She's uh, she's a piece of work, <laughs> as I told you earlier. Um, she, you know, she thought it was her right to go into his house and vandalize it if she wanted to, because she was so wronged by him having an affair. Um, she thought it was her right to leave vulgar mail uh, messages on his answering machine. That's what we used to call voicemail back in the day. And um, she was very demanding and loud and angry and uh, it just, you know, words cannot describe it. And while some people have sympathy for her or say that Dan and his girlfriend drove her crazy, uh, I believe that she started off crazy and nothing they did had anything to do with her because it was her perception of things and her belief that she, you know, that everything was against her and everything was so horribly unjust that led her mm-hmm. to do what she did. 
Um, I don't think she was justified at all. And she makes a lot of comments and statements about their divorce and her husband and his law practice that, based on my experience, sound like somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. Right, right. Um, In a domestic case, those are the hardest cases for any attorneys to deal with because, yes, you have two parties that are generally very unhappy and very angry at each other and sometimes their contentiousness can bleed into your life. And I've seen it happen with an attorney that I worked with many, many years ago. But when you have a client who will not take your advice and will not stop doing things that a court has ordered them to stop doing, that is why you cease representing them, not because of the other party or even the other attorney, no matter what his reputation is in the community or in the mm-hmm. legal community. Okay. Right. I mean, you can have Joe Blow, nobody ever heard of him, up against uh, Johnny Cochran. And if his if Joe Blow's client is violating court orders, violating protective orders, violating restraining orders, and continually being hauled into court to answer for those violations, Joe Blow is going to stop representing him. Not because he's afraid of Johnny Cochran, but because he doesn't want to jeopardize his law practice And his freedom, because eventually when your client won't listen to you, the judge is going to look to you and say, well, you're letting your client do this, so maybe you're the one I need to take this up with. Right, right. And nobody wants that. And so that's that's my take on that. I am in a I'm in a very, very, very small minority. Because even people who will say, well, what Betty did was wrong, they drove her to it. And I just Mm -hmm. don't believe anything they did. They could have ignored her, and that would have made her matter. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but we'll talk talk in in more detail about Betty. We'll do Betty on the 25th of September. Okay. And uh, the last case we have listed here, Kenneth Foster Jr. Let's talk about him real quick. Yes. He was set to death row in Texas um, in 1998, I believe, for a 1996 murder that occurred in San Antonio, Bear County. Right. Um, He and three friends were driving around. And they were committing armed robberies. And one of the men was armed with a gun. And at some point, they saw a woman in a car. They followed her. She stopped at a house, uh, got out of the car, and was talking to a gentleman on the driveway. They pulled up in front of the house. 
they uh, engaged in some discussion with her, and then one of the men got out of the car with the gun, walked up on the driveway, and according to the woman, demanded car keys and wallet from the man to steal his car. The man said no, and they the guy shot him in the face and killed him. Right, right. And so the 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 four men from the car were all arrested eventually. And mm-hmm. Kenneth Foster and a co-defendant Maurice uh Mauricio Johnson, I believe was his name, were uh tried and convicted of capital murder. Foster was convicted under law of the parties. Okay. Which means he didn't pull the trigger, but he was involved in the robberies and he was involved in the, in, you know, he, he knew what was going on. Yeah, and, and so he, he was just as guilty, it. even though he didn't pull the trigger. And right. um, that's, I mean, because he was driving the car. The guy in the front seat was uh, directing him to victims, and he was driving the car to the victims, and then the guys in the back seat were getting out and pulling off the robberies. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and he was, there's a, there's a, do you have Netflix? Yes. Okay. I am a killer on Netflix. It is a documentary. They're interviewing people who are either on death row or have been sentenced to death, but they're, and some of them, their sentences have been commuted. Um, And they talk to them. They talk to the prosecutors or police. They talk to victims, families. They talk to family members of the convicted parties. Uh, It's a very good show. Mm -hmm. And... Kenneth Foster is, is one of the, I think it's the first or second case. It's uh, entitled, I think, Guilty in the Eyes of the Law. Right, right. And so, the uh, victim's brother uh, became a uh, district attorney in Bear County. And I'm going to be reaching out to his brother and hopefully uh, have him come on the show not only to talk about his brother, uh, but also as a former district attorney and a former prosecutor, or even maybe a current prosecutor, um, to talk about law of the parties and Texas capital system. Right, right. So we also have a few episodes where we're just going to look at concepts for uh, legal concepts including uh, murder for hire, uh, the law of parties you just mentioned, and felony murder, and premeditation slash deliberation. So what exactly are we going to do in those? Are we going to use – are we going to examine them through some of the cases we've already covered and uh, how they determine everything? You know, in the murder for hire cases, um, I think looking at – a lot of people have the idea, especially with Dahlia DiPolito's case, um, that, well, you know, the husband didn't die, so it's not that big a deal. 
And then also in other cases like Thomas Whitaker, one of the reasons raised by some of his supporters for uh, commutation of his sentence was that he didn't actually pull the trigger. And there had been a couple of other cases where the person who pulled the trigger in a murder-for-hire case was not sentenced to death, and the person who didn't pull the trigger but arranged everything was sentenced to death. And so to kind of talk about that, to get an idea of why the person who arranges everything and pays for everything and gets it done by someone else would be more legally culpable than the person who actually pulled the trigger. Okay. Okay. That's and I, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a good, a good general topic and we can talk about examples and, and not all cases does the person who arranged everything get the death penalty in cases where the trigger man didn't get it. Sometimes the DA doesn't seek it, or sometimes the jury doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't find it. Mm-hmm. So uh, it'll be, like I said, an inter- an interest interesting general topic. Absolutely, it will. Okay, what about the law of parties? You know, you mentioned it, and Ken Foster. Um, you know, it, it seems like it's you know guilt by association. Basically, is that the Layman's terms for it? Correct. It, it sort of is, but really what it what it actually means is that if you are going to go out with someone else and engage in conduct such as armed robbery, you uh, you basically are putting yourself at risk of someone being killed. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't kill someone, but if you're engaging in armed robberies and somebody has a weapon, how can you not know that someone could be killed? Very true. Very true. I mean, you have um, to be stupid. <laughs> right. So you know now, I'll, and that's one of the problems with uh, and Foster's case is a big example of that. Is well, I didn't know. And Foster, one of his defenses was, well, I was just driving the car. They said they want to go commit these robberies. So, you know, I just kind of went along with them. I didn't think anything would happen. And, of course, my response to him would be, it was your car you were driving. I would have pulled over and said, y'all want to go rob people? Get the hell out of my car. I ain't driving you around and robbing people because they're going to get my license plate number and the first person police are going to come looking for is me. So you can forget that crap. Um, So, you know, that he was the innocent babe in the woods and not as involved in in everything to do with the armed robberies is kind of questionable. And so that's, you know, in law parties, in there are movements or moves in Texas now to actually abolish it or to right, get rid of right. it. 
So, okay. uh, and, and again, it's another good general concept. And law of parties and felony murder are not the same, but they're kind of sort of the same. Mm-hmm. In that in felony murder, if you're committing a burglary and the old lady of, that owns the house you're in comes out of the bathroom, sees you, and keels over with a heart attack, that's felony murder. You didn't have to right. intend her death. You didn't have to cause her death by doing anything to her. But she died while you were committing this burglary. Right. So those those are also two general concepts that mm-hmm. um, I think are pretty good. And they're different but kind of involve a similar concept of a person who didn't intend to death or who didn't uh, engineer the death is right. as culpable as the person who did actually cause it. Okay. Okay. So then finally the last topic we got coming up is pre-med and uh, deliberation. So uh, one of the things to get into as far as pre-med goes is what exactly is the, you know, there's no standard across the board. Every state has their own definition. Some of them overlap, but every state has their own definition. What, uh, you know, just a generalized definition of what pre-med is is something I want to get into on that. Correct. Correct. And we'll look at that. And, and I think people have a a misconception. They believe that for premeditation, you have to wake up in the morning and say, I am going to kill John Smith today. I'm going to shoot him with a gun, and I'm going to kill him. Right. And that actually isn't necessary. You can have an argument with John Smith, walk to your car, take your gun out of your glove compartment, walk back over and shoot him, and that was premeditation. Okay. Okay. Because when the urge, when you had the argument and the urge to kill came to you, the walk to your car to get the gun out of the glove compartment, you had time to reflect on, I'm going to kill him. Absolutely. And instead of getting to your car and saying, you know what, he ain't worth it, you get the gun, you go back and you kill him. Right. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. And, you know, when you put that way, it definitely makes sense. But, you know, a lot of people argue. A lot of people argue that it takes longer than that. It takes planning and things Right, and it and it's not. But you know the difference. The the it's interesting though. The difference if you're arguing with John Smith in a kitchen, there's a knife on the counter, and you pick it up and you stab him. That Mm -hmm. is heat of the heat of passion. Mm -hmm. But if you are arguing in the living room and you walk into the kitchen, get a knife, and go back, that's premeditation. Or deliberation. Because you walked away from the situation, so, then came Because you've the walked away and you've you've had the you've had the thought or desire. You've walked away and had time to think, do I really want to do this? And 
obviously you get the knife out of the drawer and you go back and stab him. Yeah, you wanted to do it. So, yeah. um, again, that's another call. And then Alfred, please, I think will be a good show for um, uh, October 30th. Very true. Very true. That would be a good show. And we can look yeah. at some cases where Alfred pleas were used, or uh, they're also called no contest pleas. Uh-huh. And look at the uh, stages in the proceedings in which uh, they are used. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. Compare and contrast with other We've cases. Got... Right, right. We've got a lot coming up. You know, we've covered a lot here since we've started and kicked off on the air. But, you know, definitely can't wait to, and looking forward to some a lot more coming up uh, with some of these oh, yeah. cases and uh, terms we've got that we're going to be covering in the next few uh, upcoming months. But, uh, Lisa, that's pretty much all we got here for tonight. Uh, all right, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I want to say I want to say something, Michael. Um I actually owe you and Brad Hicks and Sean Castleberry a lot because it was you guys who introduced me to this world of podcasting mm-hmm. and who gave me the opportunity to uh, co-host, and which I really I have enjoyed. And I've really enjoyed working with you on this show. Um, well, really, you're great. You're great to talk to and... You know, you you do your research, and I've really, really enjoyed it. I couldn't ask well, for a better co-host. I absolutely enjoy it, too, and I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. So, but, uh, and I like we're sharing duties with producers. Mm-hmm. So it's not all we, on your shoulders. We work well together in that case. Yes, we do. Although I still am waiting for you to get a DNA expert. <laughs> I'm working. I'm working. A DNA I'm person from... Because <laughs> that's another show I would like to do. I would love to have, you know, like a DNA to explain the 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 processes and, you know, and to give them hypotheticals. If you had this could you transfer a person's DNA to this piece of evidence? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what would it take to do that? So, um, yeah, that's that's something I'm still waiting on. I'm going to try and line up guests for Betty Broderick and Kenneth Foster. Awesome. Awesome. It's always good to have guests as far as this stuff goes. Yeah. All right. Well, but, I guess that's going to be that's going to be it. We're going to get ready to call it a night. Mm-hmm. All yes, right. Ma'am. I, I want to thank everyone for listening to Clear and Convincing tonight with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. We've just started a brand new page. It's Clear and Convincing Podcast. Uh, should be easy to find on Facebook. You can go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week for Episode 18, State of Florida versus Casey Anthony. On June 16, 2008, 
Kaylee Anthony was last seen alive by her grandfather, George, when she left their home in Orlando, Florida, with her mother, Casey. 31 days later, Cindy Anthony made a frantic call to police to report her granddaughter missing. When Kaylee's body was discovered in a wooded area near the Anthony home, Casey was charged with her murder. Join us to discuss the conflicting statements that Casey made during those 31 days, as well as the evidence against Casey and the jury verdict that convicted her of lying to police but acquitted her on all charges related to Kaylee's death. We'll also examine the change in Florida law that was spurred by this tragic and controversial case. And we look forward to talking to you then. Good night. Good night, everybody.